Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. We're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. It's a, the powerful book showing God's deliverance of his people Israel, the nation from from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And for the past several weeks, we have been seeing this miraculous power of God as he has brought the people out of Egypt. And under the leadership of Moses, God basically unites the nation and then brings them through uh, this judgment, the plagues and all of that, and then releases them from bondage in Egypt. We saw the great act of God as he parted the Red Sea, which was an amazing story, an amazing truth. And, and how he, the Israelites walked on dry land across them when the Egyptians came after the water poured, poured back over them. This evening we're going to see the response of the people. How did they respond when they saw what God did for them? Now we're going to see uh, this week and the next time we're going to also see a, a little bit more of the information. But it's just an amazing thing that in this passage they are praising God. They're so excited, you know. And then they leave and they forget what God has done. And he takes care of them. And then they go a little further and they gripe again about what God has done. And sometimes we think about our lives and we say, you know, it's amazing that God does things for us all the time. And we always say, I wonder what's going to happen next. Or how come this happened to me in the same kind of aspect there. This evening we're going to see the response of the people, this great victory. As they stand on the, the side of the Red Sea, on the other side of the Red Sea, they sing and praise God for all of this. We're calling it the Song of Moses, of course, and that's what the Bible calls it. This is the Song of Moses. This is what they sang. And we want to praise God for his salvation and deliverance for each of us from the bondage of sin and death through our Savior Jesus. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll get in the passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great night. Thank you for each one that's here. Thanks for the fun that we have as we come together. Thanks for the music, the opportunity to sing praises to you. Lord, as we look in your word at the song of Moses, and it's a little bit different than the narrative of the things we've been seeing, Lord, may we understand it and make application in our lives. Thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of eternal life simply by faith. Teach us, Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes I turn on the oldie station because I like it. And uh, I listen to the songs that were famous for when I was back maybe in junior high or high school. And it does bring back memories because music is so powerful. And when you hear music, it, it affects our emotions and our feelings. It, it brings back memories of things that we know. And, and uh, you can feel the emotions of a song a long time ago. I can still, you know, you hear a song and you go, oh, I, I'm, I remember that song. Music and song play an important part in our lives. Music, I think, is God's gift to mankind. Through music and song, we're enriched in our emotions, our feelings. Just the songs tonight, I mean, think about this. Um, rarely does the teaching of the Bible make anyone cry, except it may be so bad they cry. But think about it, that you hear a song, and sometimes it's such a great song, or so many great truths are there that it affects you in that way. Music helps us to remember because you put, you remember things, you sing things. Sometimes we can sing a song that we sang in the seventh grade and remember every word. And so we realize that it's a vital part of worship. And as we gather together, we, we come to worship our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and music is a vital part of that. We lift up our voices. We want to remember who He is and what He has done. Well, whether it's through hymns or choruses or praise songs or scripture songs, whatever, we want to think about it. And sometimes you think about different songs that you've sung, and you think about the words, and it brings back so many things. Well, this evening, we look at the song, Song of Moses. And I'll be honest, it's not the easiest thing to teach. Narrative in the, in the book of Exodus and Genesis, so much easier to teach than a song. Because the song is singing about our God and Savior. And so what we have to do is stop and say, what is he saying? What are the words of the song? Too often, and this is one of the things that happens to us, we'll sing a song, and we'll sing a song over and over, and we don't even listen to the words, because we know it, don't we? 
we just say them. And sometimes, do you ever catch yourself singing a song, especially in church, and you really hadn't even thought about what you said? You just sing it because you know the words. Sometimes we do the same thing when we read something like the Song of Moses. What's it about? And we'll see what it's about. It's about God. And as we move to Exodus 15, the nation of Israel has just crossed the Red Sea on dry dry land as God divided the waters. The Egyptian army that followed, he caused the water to return on them. And what we have is God delivered the Israelites and God judged the Egyptians. And in Exodus 14, listen to this, this is the very end of the chapter we just finished last time. It said, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. You know, when you say fear the Lord, it doesn't mean like they're afraid of him, like, ooh, we, we don't know what to do. It means awe and respect and admiration and praise. And, and that's what we do when we think about who God is and, and what he has done. So it's a very, very powerful thing. This evening, we're going to see in verses 1 through 18, that's a longer chapter, it's 27 verses in the chapter. We're going to see the first part is the song of Moses. Praise to God for his deliverance. God is the all-powerful, sovereign God. Let me break down this little song for you. First of all, in verses 1 through 5, he de- the victory is declared. He talks about how what God has done. And then he describes, verses 6 through 10, describing God's act at the sea. In other words, what God did at that event. And then in verses 11, 12, and 13, we see God's power and his character. And there's some words there that will stand out. We'll talk about several of them. And then in 14 through 18, God's promise of the future inheritance. He talks about going and taking the land. And we'll remind ourselves what happened there and, and all of those kind of things. So let's start with the first part. And the first part is the victory declared, verses 1 through 5. Look what he says. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said. Now, I, I want as we start this, I want you to think. Notice it's to the Lord. Have you thought about that? It didn't say they just all gathered and sang the song. It didn't say that they, uh, that they sang the song to each other. It said they sang the song to the Lord. And have you thought about that tonight when Stephen and the group were up there and they were singing? Were you singing this to the Lord or were you just singing it? I mean, think about it. Sometimes we don't even, you know, we don't think. And it says they sang this song to the Lord. And if you notice... Just to remind you that it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, remember, that means the, the Hebrew name YHWH, which is the uh, personal name of God. So it's very powerful. When we sing on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or whenever we do any kind of singing, it's still easy to go through the motions. We need to lift up our voices, praise, and adoration to God. It's a very powerful thing. Well, uh, he says, notice how he starts off, I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. So he starts off by saying, I'm going to sing to the Lord. And I think one of the things that maybe that we can make an application from, and sometimes it will help me, is when I sing a song on, a say, a Sunday night or a Sunday morning, that I ought to sing it to the Lord. That I ought to lift up my voice and praise him. Notice what he says, I will sing to the Lord. He is highly exalted. Exalted. It literally says that he is the one to be lifted up, the highly exalted one, the one lifted up. And when you think about our lives, there is, there is God, and there is no other. Nothing else could be magnified as far as that's concerned. And, and look what he says. He says, uh, the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now, the only one that had horses, the best we could tell, were the Egyptians. And they were coming after them. They had the chariots. And he says, they are, he has hurled them 
into the sea. We talked about last time that if you were the nation of Israel and as you were walking across, the waters are on both sides of you. And it's a big thing. And there's two million people trying to get out of there. And we go. it takes us all night to go across the Red Sea on dry land. And then the Egyptians come after us. And the best we could tell from one of the Psalms last week or last time is that it appeared that God started it to rain and the wheels on the chariots got stuck and they began to turn and they were stuck in the middle and they were saying to one another, we better get out of here because God is fighting for the Israelites. And then suddenly in the dawn, Moses, God told Moses to pick up the staff and the water came back on them. And so uh, Moses is saying to God, I will sing to the Lord. He's exalted because the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. He now turns to describe God. Look what he says. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is my strength and song. What it literally says is, he's my strong song. You ever thought about the Lord being a strong song? Because that's what he is. He's the strong song. He's the one that we sing. The name, of course, once again, is the personal name of God. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. When you see the word salvation, that's a thing to think about. Uh, We've talked about this before. The, the word for salvation can mean a physical deliverance. I think that's what it means in this passage. Sometimes there's an aspect of salvation in which you're saved from a disease, you're saved from an enemy. Sometimes there's an aspect of salvation in which we call justification, in which you've got, which God delivers to you and gives you eternal life simply by faith. There's also the aspect of salvation, which is the Christian life, as we're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. So there's all kind of things. But I think in this passage, when he says, The Lord is my strength and song has become my salvation, he has saved them from their enemy. And I think if you notice, it's Hebrew parallelism, which means sometimes they'll say one thing and then they'll say another thing, which is very similar. They're saying the same thing twice, except they're saying it just a little bit differently. The Lord has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God. And I will extol him. He's saying the same thing twice. This is my Father's God. This is my God. I will praise him. I will lift him up. He is my God. Now, one of the reasons that we sing is to praise and lift up our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So think about that when you sing. And and, uh, we worship God. And the the word worship comes from the old English word worth-ship. It's showing worth to something. And that's what we're actually doing. We're showing worth uh, to our God. And he is our strength and our Savior. Notice in verse 3. He says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. That's pretty powerful because the word warrior there literally means a soldier. He's saying the Lord is our soldier. Let me ask you this question. The nation of Israel had been in Egypt for how many years as slaves? Do you remember? Over 400, maybe 420, 430, but over 400. They were not an army. They'd never fought. They never fought anything. And when they come out, they come out as slaves, but they come out marching out. But who does the fighting? God does the whole fighting. This generation, we've talked about this before, this generation will never fight. They get into the wilderness. They gripe what God has done. They refuse to go into promised land. And this whole generation dies out in the 40 years in which they walk in the, in the wilderness. And it's their children that end up being the warriors that go in and fight. So what he's saying is, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is the one who did the fighting. We think about this. When Jesus Christ comes back as the King of kings and Lord of lords and he comes back to the earth, who's doing the fighting? He is. We're coming with him. 
at the second coming, you know, there's the first coming which he came to the earth to die on the cross. There's the second coming which he comes to the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Revelation 19, verse 11, the heavens open and here he comes riding on the white horse. He's the one doing the fighting. He is the warrior. So the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And then he says this, he says, uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, has, he has cast into the sea and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. They all went down like a stone. It, it's a, it's a kind of an amazing thing. In verse 5, the depths covered them. They went down into the depth, depths like the deep had covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. We've talked about this a lot of times. People wanted to say that, the, uh, that crossing the Red Sea was a shallow area, and that's the reason the nation of Israel could get across. And, but we always want to say that if that's true, how did, they, how did the entire army of Pharaoh drown? And how did they sink to the bottom? if it wasn't deep, and it was. So here's the first part of the song, and it was, God has gained the victory, and I will praise him for drowning the enemy. <laughs> That's a pretty good start. Now, part two, he's going to talk about, he's going to describe God's act at the sea. What did God do when they were crossing the Red Sea? Now, this is what we call anthropomorphic, which means giving human characteristics to God. It'll say, his arm did this, or his mighty breath. Well, God doesn't have a breath like that. God's, not, God's a spirit being. God the Father is not a person in that sense. He is a spirit being, and so he's going he's to describe God in a human being way. Notice what he says in verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Once again, Hebrew parallelism as he's going, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic. Your right hand, O Lord, scatters the enemy. Now, he doesn't have a right hand. But he's saying, as the way like a soldier came in with his right hand and gave the victory, this is what God does. The truth is, we rest in the all-powerful hand of God. What did he say? I'll never leave you or forsake you. What should you fear? Uh, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Nobody can pluck them out of my, my hand. We know that God doesn't have a hand holding on to us, but he is holding on to us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. No one can pluck us out. Look at verse 7. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrew those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. He says you overthrow the enemy. You know, one of the things you always think about is that uh, anger. And a lot of people say that anger is a sin. You know, people say, oh, don't be angry. Well, the Bible says be angry in what? Sin not. You can be angry. You can be angry about righteous things. You can be angry in the right way. And in a sense, this is God angry at the nation of Egypt for what they had done to the Jewish people. He goes on to say, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. I wish we could have seen that. I mean, there's so many things. Of course, movies, you know, they, in movies they, they do things. And we look at it and go, wow, I wonder if it really looked like that. And we know what a movie looks like. But can you imagine being there with the waters divided and a wall of water on both sides as the sea was parted. And where you're walking is dry. It's not muddy. You're not going, oh, my sandals, I'm never going to get this off of them. You know, you know it's not what it's like. It's, it's amazing. In Psalm 66, verse 6, it says, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Let us rejoice in Him. 
He says here, God divided the waters. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue. Now, this is, this is what's going to happen. The, the, Israel, the uh, Egyptians said this. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. Now, you remember when we studied this, that the Egyptians, after the Jews left, now, when the Jews first left, the Egyptians were glad to see them go because of the death of the firstborn. And when they left, then Pharaoh said, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I'm not letting these people get away. And so they came after him and Pharaoh says, I will overtake them. I will destroy them. I will kill them. I will draw out my sword, and I will destroy them. Pretty powerful. Do we have an enemy? You know, a lot of people think enemies are unbelievers. I've had people say, oh, God, those people, you don't even want to be around them. They're so, they're so mean, or this, or this, or this. The people aren't the enemy. The enemy's who? Satan, we have a roaring lion. An enemy is a roaring lion. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, the devil. The fallen world controlled by Satan and affects our flesh. That's our enemy. Look what it says in verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So the song keeps saying the same thing over and over. That God destroyed the enemy and he put the water on them. The nation of Israel... Never forgets. Never forgets. This is why this song is here. If you ask the Jewish people, were you in Egypt as slaves? The answer is, of course we were. How did you come out of there? They would say, God delivers us up. God parted the Red Sea. They never forget. You remember when Menachem and Begin and, and Warsadot were there and Jimmy Carter was there and and I've told this story many times, but I never want to forget it because it's just so true. And, and Jimmy Carter said, and he had Anwar Sadat on this side and Menachem Begin on this side. That's Israel and that's Egypt. And he said, we have worked so hard to put together this peace agreement between Egypt and Israel. We have worked so hard. And Menachem Begin went, but not as hard as my people worked when they were slaves in Egypt. They never forget. And they have the word of God, so they will never forget. And they'll never forget this song. And if they read their scripture, and we read the scripture, we say, they sang this song so they wouldn't forget what God has done. And there's so many things that he has done in our lives. There's so many ways he's provided for us and protected us. He's given to us eternal life as a gift. There's so many other things we should never forget them. And I think that's one reason, besides the scripture and besides the Psalms, we think about songs that people write about what God has done in his character, and it's good to do that. We'll never forget that he's taken us from death to life, from darkness to light, from the family of Satan to the family of God. Well, let's look at the third part, and here we go. This is God's character and power. We're going to see some great things as we look at this. Look what God, how God is described. Look at verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? He starts off with a key question, and the question is, who is like you? O God, who is like you, O Lord? You know what the answer is? Nobody's like him. There's only one God. In our membership training today, we talked about God. One God and three different persons. Not three gods, but one God. There is no one like God. He spoke and everything came into being. He controls all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He loves us, every one of us, with an everlasting, unconditional love. He, he brought us to himself through Jesus Christ. The story of the Bible is the perfect God bringing sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. Moses says there's nobody like God. The scripture says, the fool has said, 
in his heart, what is it? There is no God. I think it's an amazing thing that uh, one of the one of the psalmists writes and says this. He says, a man takes a tree and cuts it down. And with one half of the tree, he builds a fire and warms himself. With the other half of the tree, he fashions a god to worship. And he sets it up, and then the psalmist goes on and say, but that god has eyes but can't see, and a mouth but can't hear. I mean, excuse me, a mouth and can't talk, and ears that can't hear. And he says, and all who worship that are dumb. It's really the word for stupid. He says, you're stupid if you, if you think that that is God. See, there's only one God, and there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and men. Look how he describes God here. He says, he says, who is like you? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Now, I want you to think about holiness, and I think I put, I've got three words up here. We're going to see holiness, power, basically, and sovereign. But holiness... Holiness means to be set apart. That's all it means. He is set apart from his creation. Listen, we've talked about this before, and I remember one time I was talking to a guy about a song, and a guy said, well, here's a great song. You're the air that I breathe. You're the, you're the wind that blows. I said, no, 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 that's not a very good song because God isn't the air that we breathe. God's not part of the creation. God is separate from the creation. God is not the air, and he's not the mountains, and he's not the sun. God is the creator of the air, the mountains, and the sun. He is a holy God, which means he is set apart from all of his creation. He is righteous and holy. He goes on to say, Who is like you, God? Who is like your majesty and holiness? Awesome in praise, working wonders. Awesome in praise, working wonders. He is a powerful God. That's who he is. Uh, Everybody uses the word today, awesome, all the time. Uh, Awesome pie. Pie is great, but it's not awesome. Banana pudding comes close to being awesome, but it's not. It's not. The only thing that's really awesome is God because the word awesome means awe-inspiring. And, and the one that we should say who is awe-inspiring is God. He is powerful God. He is God that, that uh, did the ten plagues and parted the Red Sea. He is the sovereign Lord. He goes on to say awesome praises, working wonders because he's the sovereign one. And then in verse 12 he says, You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. He destroyed them. He did it. Look at verse 13, and this is one of my favorite words I want you to see. In verse 13 it says, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. Now the word that stands out is the word loving kindness. It is probably, I think, the, I think it's the most important word in the Old Testament. A lot of times people say in the New Testament the most important word is love and it's agape or something like that. In the Old Testament, the most important word, I think, is this word. It's H-E-S-E-D, chesed, and it is translated loving kindness or loyal love. It shows the character of God that his love never changes, that it never changes, that he is a covenant-loving God, that when he says, this is what I do, this is what I love, this is what, it never changes. And so he says, your loving kindness, your unchanging love, you have led the people whom you've redeemed. I didn't bring, I didn't really bring out the word redeem uh, as far as on the, on the trine or anything, but redemption is God purchasing. And God purchased his nation Israel from Egypt, and he purchased us through his son Jesus Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He has purchased us. Realize what a great God we have. Unconditional love who has redeemed us. We need to rest in our great God. And we think about it as as if we have been redeemed and he leads us uh, by his word and spirit. That's who we are. Now, the last section 
Uh, oh, well, I've got that. I didn't know I had that. As believers, we've been redeemed. You can go ahead back there. Look at that for a second. As believers, we've been redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And He leads us by His Word and Spirit, by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, helping us to understand. The last section. God's promise of the future inheritance of the land. Now, let me remind you of this. A long time ago, before this happened, there was a man by the name of Abram. And he lived in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iran, Iraq. It's where the Tigris-Euphrates River comes together in the Fertile Crescent. And God told this man to leave where he lived, to go to a land that he would show him and a land that he would give him. And that's Abraham. And Abraham left and he went. And then God gave a promise to Abraham that there would be a land, a seed, a blessing for them. And this, this land that he would have for his people and there would be offspring and the Messiah would come through him. And from Abraham came Isaac. And then from Isaac came Jacob. And from Jacob, 12, the 12 tribes. And these 12 tribes and these family basically ended up in Egypt. And after 400 and something years, 430 possibly, they're now coming back. And he says, I'm going to take you back to the land that I promised you. And there are people living in that land. You know, when they left 430 years ago, people didn't say, oh, let nobody go live in that land because those people will probably come back someday for their land. They just went and took the land. And you remember the, the promise of Joseph. What was Joseph's promise? What did he want the people of Israel to do after he died? Take his bones. He said, take the bones back because when you leave here, I want you to take me back to the promised land. It's called the promised land because God promised it to Israel. So watch what happens. He's going to talk about how that he would take them back to this land. Notice verse 14. The peoples have heard. They trembled. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. The people in the land where the Jewish people used to be, they have heard that they're coming. Now you might say, how in the world have they heard? How did they hear? I don't know. Didn't say. Do you remember that the nation of Israel is going to wander around how long? Forty years. And then they're going to go take the land, right? Do you remember when they got outside of Jericho? How long it had been out, when they got to Jericho? How long it had been since they had left Egypt? Forty years, right? Do you remember what Rahab the harlot told the spies? We know what your God did to the nation of Egypt. That was 40 years ago. They still knew about it. They still remembered it. The people, he says, in Philistia, they heard what's happening and they've trembled. He's coming after them. It's powerful. The, the word Philistia is the word for Canaan, the promised land. We call it Israel. He said the people living in that land know that then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. He says, listen, when you get ready to go take the land, don't worry. When you get back, you don't have to be afraid. I'll never forget when they came, you know, if you remember the scripture, they left Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai. They stayed there one year. After that year, they left, and they it's an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. That's a city right at the southern part of Israel. They stopped at Kadesh Barnea, and they were supposed to take the land. And they wanted to send the spies. They saw the spies. The spies came back. The spies said, we can't do it. Two spies said, yes, we can. The other said, no. And so God said, because you won't go in? You'll wander for 40 years. 
and then you get to go into the land. It's a powerful truth. Moab, they were all afraid. Listen, when they got ready to go in the land, they should have walked right in and they would have taken the whole thing because God had already had the enemies be afraid. Already had the enemies to be afraid. But they didn't go. So that whole group had to die off 40 years for them to die off before the next group could go in. Look what it says, verse 16. Terror and tread have fallen upon them by the greatness of your arm. They are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until, your, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. He says, we're going we're gonna to go and there's terror and dread and they're all afraid and we're going to be the ones to go there. Now, where are they going? They're going to Israel. They're going to what we call modern-day Israel. They're going to Mount... Where? Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. They're going back. Notice what he says. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now let me ask you a question. Do they have a sanctuary? Do they have a tabernacle? Do they have uh what do they have? Almost nothing. But he's already telling them they're going to go back and have a sanctuary on top of a mountain. Where's that going to be? Where's it going to be? Huh? No, no, no. No, because this is in the land, the promised land. Where are they going to be? That's right, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, and Jerusalem. Psalm 76, verse 2, And his tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place is in Zion. That's the city. It's powerful. Realize the place they're going to go is going to be the same place that Jesus rules as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen to this. Psalm 132, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He desired it for his habitation. This will be my resting place forever. Now, do you understand that one day, Jesus Christ, when he comes to the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in righteousness and justice, he will come to Jerusalem. He comes first to the Mount of Olives. And then he goes into Jerusalem and he sets up his kingdom and he rules as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in Jerusalem. Do we understand that? That's true. That's what he's saying. That's going to happen. Look at the last verse. Does it sound familiar? And the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Who found that? The Hallelujah Chorus, isn't it? And he shall reign forever and ever. And ever he is the king, and he shall reign forever and ever. The song of Moses. Praise to God for the victory. Praise to God for the actions at the sea. Praise to God for his character, and praise to God for his promises, his future inheritance, and the reign of the king. A. W. Tozer said this. He said, "Worship is the missing jewel." In, in his book, he said, "You know, God wants us to worship Him. He doesn't need us." For if he needed us, he wouldn't be self-sufficient God. He doesn't need anybody or anything, but he wants us. When Adam sinned, it was not he who cried, God, where are you? It was God who cried, Adam, where are you? We've been seeing it in the 2-2 class that I teach on Wednesday nights, that when mankind fell, man went and ran and hid. It was God who came looking for him. God loves us with an everlasting, unconditional love. He wants a relationship and fellowship with 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 us. We can worship, worship Him as we sing and praise His name. So what have we sing? We sing the song of Moses. We sing praise God in His power and His character and His promises. And he's, we sing that He shall reign forever 
and ever. Let me give you some applications and I'll open it up for any questions you might have. But the first one is this. Let's praise God in song. Let's do it. In fact, probably we ought to have Stephen come up here and do another song. That would be that would be a pretty good application. I'm not, I'm not saying you have to, Stephen. I'm just saying, wouldn't that be a great way to apply it? Let's praise God in song. Stephen, come sing a song and we'll praise, you in, we'll praise God in song. Who is he? What he has done? God is a God of love and grace and unchanging. God so loved us that he gave his son, Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. It is God who so loved us that he provides and protects. And so when you think about God, we can praise him for Jesus Christ and how he died for us and gives us eternal life. But when we think about God, we can also praise him because he's the one that provides and protects. He'll never leave us or forsake us. What should we fear? He'll provide everything that we need. A guy by the name of John Phelan Jr. wrote uh, in a little book, and he talked about worship. And here's what he said, and I think it's pretty good, because our culture today thinks worship is, is for us. I didn't get anything out of the worship, really. The whole thing's worship, not just the music, but the whole thing. But anyway, people think that. Here's what he wrote. He said, worship's not meant to please me, to make me feel good, to meet my criteria, my standards, my taste. Worship's for God. I'm not to be the center of worship. God is at the center of worship. So the next time you say, I don't like that song, well, sit down then and tell, tell God, I don't like that song about you. He'll say, what's wrong with it? Swindoll said, what is worship? It is the celebration of God as we lift up our praise. Think about who he is. Think about, let's praise him for his power, the power to save and to deliver us. He is the Savior. I love this. I found this quote. It says this. If our greatest need had been information, God would send us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. Or Steve Jobs. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an an economist. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. In membership training, we spend, gosh, we spend about two hours of the membership training, it always seems like two hours, talking about Christ's salvation in the Bible and how it all fits together. And the greatest truth of all, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he died and he rose again and he gives eternal life and we need a Savior and we trust in him and he gives us life. We, we praise him for his power to save and deliver. We praise him for his character. He is a holy, righteous God who is loving kindness. Boy, it's amazing. We want to live as holy children for our, for our God. The third thing is we praise Him for His promises. He promised Israel the land. What did He promise us? Huh? Is that your blessings? I'll never leave you, forsake you. I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. There's all kind of... He promises a home in heaven. He promises that He'll provide and protect. All those things. And finally, last but not least, let's praise Him for His rulership. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day when Jesus Christ comes, the whole world will be different because our Savior will come. May we praise, may we sing praises to our great God and King, Jesus Christ, who saves us, provides, and protects. Now that's a song of Moses. And next week, uh, by the way, there's another little song. Uh, Miriam sings a song. It's only two lines, so we won't take very long on that one. But anyway, she sings a song as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great night. Thank you for the song of Moses. Lord, we know it's hard to teach through a song, but Lord, you show us everything. 
and we see who, who God is, and we praise your name for your promises. We praise your name for your character. We praise your name for your power. We praise your name that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray that as we sing songs, we'll, we'll listen to the words. We'll sing the song to you as Moses sang his song to you. May we do that. Thank you, Lord, for music. Thank you. It helps us remember. Thank you for all that you've given us. But most of all, thank you for our Savior, Jesus. For it's his name we pray. Amen.